Welcome to today's edition of the Career 100 Podcast. This series is designed to introduce students to different career options that are in demand and share the path each practitioner has taken to arrive in their current position. I think what gets me up in the morning is thinking about the various challenges, thinking about how I'm going to explain something to somebody, how I'm going to approach a certain problem. There's an excitement to that, to having an empty slate in front of me and having so much that I need to learn, that I need to research, how much creative juices I need to pour into something. I want to thank everyone for joining us today and welcome you to today's podcast and interview. Today we're continuing our series on the top 100 careers featuring the profession of mathematician. Mathematicians use high-level mathematics and technology to develop new mathematical principles, understand relationships between existing principles, and solve real-world problems. Mathematicians work in the federal government as well as in the private sector and in engineering research. They work on teams with engineers and scientists and other professionals. Generally, a graduate degree in mathematics is the most common educational requirement for mathematicians. However, there are a few positions out there that only require a bachelor's degree. Employment for mathematicians is expected to increase by about 16% between now and 2020. However, there will be strong competition for the jobs that are available because of the small number of openings in this occupation. Today's guest is John Seymour. John is an applied mathematician and color scientist. He has earned 18 degrees with inventions having to do with measurement of color and adjustment of industrial processes to assure the correct color of products. Over the past 30 years, he has worked in the printing industry, medical image processing, satellite navigation, and analytical lab equipment. He writes a blog under the pen name John the Math Guy, which is described as applied math and color science with a liberal sprinkling of goofy humor. Friends, today our guest is John Seymour. John, welcome to the call. Good afternoon, Felicia. So tell me a little bit about how you came to be a mathematician. I always say that oftentimes children don't wake up and want to go into their career, you know, but I can imagine somebody who's strong with math might have said, hey, I might want to do this later on in life. Well, I grew up being very good at math, but I don't really think I had that epiphany of I want to be a mathematician until much later. In high school, I was in all of the math competitions, and in, in one I did extremely well, so it was kind of a foregone conclusion that I, when I got to college, I would have to uh, do math. I had no idea what that meant, though, other than maybe being a math teacher, and the one thing I knew at that time was that I definitely did not want to be a math teacher, Okay. so I've changed my mind on that, but that was a, certainly something that I would not want to do, wouldn't even think of doing. So I took a year of college and was basically disillusioned and I had no idea where it was going. So I took a year off, which for me turned out to be a really good thing. I worked for a little tiny company called Radio Shack. Perhaps you've heard of them? I have heard of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, working as a salesperson there. And I found out two things in that year that I was working there. One is that I knew that I didn't want to work at Radio Shack. Okay. <laughs> which is a good thing. The other thing I learned, to put a timeline on this, I'm pretty ancient. This was about the time that the TRS-80 and the home computer was uh, coming out. It was 19 zoom or so, somewhere <laughs> around in there. I, I remember those days. 
Oh, you're, you're certainly not old enough to remember those days. I am old enough to, um, okay. to, to remember those days. Okay, so I started working at Radio Shack, and I had a chance to play with their computers. And I thought that was pretty cool. So I decided, okay, I'm going back to college so I can find a job that is more intellectually rewarding. And I picked up a second degree, so I was working on a double major of uh, mathematics first and computer science also. Now, that doesn't explain how I got into becoming a mathematician. So then we'll fast forward a bit. I got a job out of college as a computer programmer, and I worked through several jobs that way. I gradually learned over a period of about 10 years that I was really good at computer programming, but that it wasn't good for me. It wasn't a fit for my personality. Okay. Now, this is directly aimed at the students now. It's important that you find something that you're good at, but it's also important that you find something that you're going to enjoy doing 40 hours a week. I'm an extrovert, and doing computer work where it's just me and the computer talking 40 or 50 or more hours a week, that was stressful for me. You know, my path, while I didn't go the path of mathematics and computer science, I did have a very similar epiphany because I'm slightly extroverted. And the fact... Really? Yeah, just slightly extroverted. (laughs) And the fact is, when I first got out of college, I was working as an accountant. And at the level that I was working at, I was working with the books and the books and the books. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I had to report to the board. And so there wasn't a whole lot of interaction for what I had to do. And so I started looking around for something similar. So I think to echo what you were saying is it is important when students are picking jobs is to think about not only what you're good at, as you stated, but also what will you be willing to do 40 hours a week in today's economy, perhaps even more than 40 hours a week. The thing that helped me along with that is a thing called the Myers-Briggs test. Myers-Briggs personality type inventory or something like that. But that helped me identify specifically those things, like being an extrovert working in an introverted job, being a creative type person dealing with lots and lots of details. That was another thing about computer programming that uh, didn't work well for me. The big one that probably hit me the most, though, was that I'm not a structured, deadline-oriented, calendar-type person at all. And the jobs that I was in were very much, we need to get this done today, we need to get this out this code working by next week, whatever, that was just a constant frustration for me. You know, I like the fact that you talked about the Myers-Briggs because I think that that is an important tool that students can use in order to help them make decisions about and look at jobs in terms of what we're good at. Because oftentimes, sometimes we just talk about the money, you know, the money part of it. But when you're miserable in a job, the money doesn't matter to you. I, I was getting more and more miserable as time went on. At any rate, so back to my story. I left several jobs as a result of this getting more and more frustrated. And uh, finally, I landed on a job where I was one step away from the frontline coders, the people who are writing the software. I was basically the person who was leading the way out on the frontier of figuring out what it is that the software is supposed to do. 
I was working in a, and I still am, working in a job of applied research. Advanced product development is another name for what I've been doing. But it's been wonderful for me because a lot of my job is taking the knowledge that I learn and teaching it to other people. Remember I said I didn't want to be a teacher? Yes. Yeah. I do a lot of that, and I found out that I love it. Another thing that this job has given me is that I am being rewarded for taking the time to go out and learn more stuff rather than being rewarded for getting something done today. Okay. And that works well for me. That, that fits well with my Myers-Briggs profile. Great. I work with a lot of engineers, and they, the ones that work out well, they're the ones that are task-oriented, and they come to me for information. I feed them information. But I don't have to, I'm one step away from those deadlines now. So that's been very enjoyable for me. And most of what I'm doing now is applied mathematics. Okay. So next question that I have is what types of problems does a mathematician solve? And I think you've kind of touched on it. Could you further elaborate? Yeah, sure. Basically, as I said, I work with engineers. They're writing software. They're doing mechanical design. They're doing electrical design. What I'm doing in particular, I'm a color scientist as well, I come up with ideas for products, machines, stuff that is able to measure color on printing presses as it's being printed, and it adjusts the inking level on the printing press to make sure that the colors are proper on the printed page. My role in that is it goes beyond math, and I think any applied math really does go beyond math. I have to understand the physics. I have to understand the optics. I have to understand the color science. I have to understand the printing. I have to understand mechanically how a printing press works. So all of the math comes together in trying to figure out the optics, trying to figure out the physics behind this, trying to develop mathematical models, trying to develop equations that will predict how the color will run on a printing press and how a change in the inking level will change that color. A lot of what I do is come up with mathematical models. A lot of what I do is testing out those models or pulling heaps and scads of data and trying to make some sense out of it, trying to understand why this happens, why that happens. And then the mathematics of going through very carefully and making sure that what I come up with is going to work at all times. So let me just kind of step back for a second. So the applied part of it is the mathematics applied to a particular situation that you're trying to solve or I don't want to say fix. That's probably not the right word. Well, it's often fixing things, yeah. Okay. So it's about using your mathematics in some sort of way so that it's useful and valuable for a process, an experiment, in your case, in developing colors, products, etc. Sure, yes, that's a fair statement. Okay. So, are there any myths or misconceptions about being a math guy? Yeah, I, I think there probably are. <laughs> I have three that I, I think are the big ones. The first misconception is that mathematicians are nerds. I should clarify that applied mathematicians are not nerds. It's the pure mathematicians that are the nerds. Okay, then let's make the distinction. Thank you. Yes, I, I think that's an important distinction. Another myth, I've taught algebra. I taught algebra at a college. It was an introductory algebra course, 
And I did a lot of philosophizing on what the students learned about math. I should explain. The class I was teaching was a remedial sort of class. They had to get through the class in order to get a degree. So most of the students there were not real strong in math, and most of them did not love math at all. One of the things that I came to understand is that in high school or in college, one of the things that you learn while watching the professor is that math is nice and clean, and there is a proof for everything that goes get a ding, get a ding, get a ding, get a ding, and you have a proof. It's from step A to step B to step C. And it all looks very simple when the professor or the math teacher puts it up on the board. What's missing, what the math students don't get to see, is the fact that when the professor was first working up his notes for the class, it took him like five hours to get from step three to step four. And there were many false starts of, well, no, that doesn't work. But the thing is that when teachers get up in front of the students, they somehow feel that they need to show the math in a way that is very smooth and neat and concise and beautiful. I think it's kind of a shame, and here's the misconception, it's kind of a shame that students learn that mathematicians are far more intelligent than everybody else. I think they're just better at hiding their work. Okay. Third misconception, that mathematicians don't need communication skills. All they need to be able to do is run computer programs, to run Excel, to run uh, MATLAB or Mathematic or whatever. That's all they need to be able to do. I've found that my communication skills, the ability to write clearly, the ability to organize thoughts in a way that helps people get from A to B, if I didn't have those skills, I would just be sitting in my office doing math, and that's it. And I probably would eventually get unemployed. In order to make any use of the stuff that I do, it has to be communicated, and it has to be communicated in a way that people can understand. So those are the three myths, the big, big myths that I see about maths. Well, I think it's true that communication is really one of the overarching themes that all employers and people who are looking to succeed need to be successful in. Employers are looking for it in their employees, and having an employee who is good with math is good for certain things, but if you're looking for advancement, you've got to be able to communicate to audiences that are perhaps not as smart as you. And I think about my husband in particular. My husband got a degree in aerospace engineering. Uh, but he's in Mark. Is he smarter than you or not? I didn't catch that. You know what? He's a very smart guy. Let's leave it at that. <laughs> so He's smart in different ways. He's uh, smart in very different ways. But one of the things that I appreciate about him and his employers have always appreciated about him is he could take all of that analytical stuff that, you know, that kind of comes naturally to him and be able to explain it in a way so that his bosses and his bosses' bosses mm -hmm. understand what needs to happen and develop processes to support whatever it is that he's up to. And I think that's really one of the key distinctions and one of the things that I would really emphasize and want people to get out of this interview is it's not just about being able to do math, but it's also being able to add to it and have developed your communication skills. So, you know, applied mathematics or just being a mathematician will only take you so far. It's really the combination of mathematics as well as communication tools that will allow you to really progress and go far in your career. Absolutely. And I think, I think you should hang on to your husband, too. He sounds like a good guy. He is a good guy. So if you had the opportunity to give a young John advice, what advice would you give yourself today knowing what you know now? Mm, well, let's see here. 
If I would run into myself 30 years ago, I don't think there's any advice that I could possibly give to me that I would listen to. <laughs> but yeah. moving ahead maybe five years or 10 years from that time, one thing I think that's important that I learned is that mathematics is only part of it. If you're doing applied mathematics rather than pure mathematics, you need to have something that you're applying it to. In my case, it started out as computer science, but that really wasn't even enough. It was necessary along the way for me to pick up the physics that I didn't take in college, but I probably should have. It's been necessary for me to pick up a little bit of electrical engineering as I've gone. In, like in my current job right now in printing, I've spent an awful lot of time trying to figure out how printing presses work and how the business of printing works. Why this is a good idea for a product and that would not sell. Why this is something that would give one of our customers a return on their investment and why this wouldn't. Those are all ideas that are well outside of the framework of mathematics, but they're essential. It's essential that you learn as much as possible about everything in the business. So. That's a piece of advice I would give, and also the advice about follow your heart and understand your emotional side and make sure that you're in something that you enjoy. I think those are probably the two big things that I would tell myself. You know, I, I think we have all learned the lesson that whatever we went to school with is sufficient to take you to one level, but it's really by continuing to educate yourself and being a curious person and learning new things that you're really able to apply it in different ways right. and take you on one trajectory to perhaps a completely different trajectory or, you know, just one that's one level over than perhaps the path you started on. And I think that that's an important lesson for our young people to understand is oftentimes there is no direct path through your career. You often will make adjustments based on what you pick up, the position that you were in, the opportunities that you're afforded, and you need to be flexible enough to consider and open to the opportunities because you never know where they're going to take you, and often they will take you in great and wonderful directions. Mm -hmm. Right. So, John, tell me, what gets you up in the morning to serve your clients, and on the other side, what keeps you up at night? Mm. I think what gets me up in the morning is thinking about the various challenges, thinking about how I'm going to explain something to somebody, how I'm going to approach a certain problem. There's an excitement to that, to having an empty slate in front of me and having so much that I need to learn, that I need to research, how much creative juices I need to pour into something. The thing that keeps me up at night is probably, it's like a mystery story, reading a mystery where you get involved in the plot, and you want to know what happens when you turn the next page. You want to know what happens when the person walks into the room and how that date will work out for that person, whether or not such and such will work out for them. And I have that same sort of feeling when I'm in the midst of a uh, project where I'm analyzing the data. I'm saying, you know, I wonder if this is going to work out. I wonder if there's a correlation between this thing and that thing. I wonder if this drives, I wonder if, let's see, how would I do that? And those are the kinds of things that I find myself thinking about as I'm going to bed at night. Absolutely. 
You know, I've been fortunate, and I say it almost every interview, that the thing that lights me up about this particular series is I get to meet people who are excited and interested in what they're doing, Mm -hmm. and they often will tell a very interesting story about, they will often give me a very similar but different answer to that same question. It's oftentimes whatever gets them up in the morning also is the thing that keeps them up at night because they're trying to figure out how they're going to explain it or how to do something. There's there's -hmm. something about that creative process that oftentimes our minds are still working on things as we're drifting off to sleep. So why do you think that being a mathematician is on the list of the top 100 careers? Well, it probably has very little to do with the kind of mathematics that I do. I should explain. I'm in the printing industry, and the printing industry is undergoing a lot of changes right now. Magazines are getting thinner. Newspapers are going out of business. Sales flyers, catalogs are getting smaller and less frequent. So there's less of the type of printing that I'm used to doing. There's less of that being done. The color science part is that's still going on. Printing of various other types of stuff like packaging, that's something that isn't going away. We still need the Cheerios box and the label for our bottled water. So that'll keep me busy at least until I retire. But I think the thing that's driving the need for mathematicians is called big data or data analytics. It's a combination of the fact that we have great ways of collecting information and we have great ways huge capacity for storing that information and we don't necessarily know how to gather information out of that data we are a society that has become uh, data rich and knowledge poor so you look at things like Amazon how do they decide what sort of products to recommend for you to buy next you look at something like Netflix again they have a recommendation engine that is fed by a lot of mathematicians who figured out some clever ideas that would say that if you like Ghostbusters and if you like Star Wars, uh, if they find out that there's a bunch of Western movies that you like or is it romantic comedy, whatever, they can put the algorithms around that, draw the correlations and say, here's a movie that's coming out and I think you probably want to watch this one. That's one sort of analytics that we're capable of doing it now because Amazon has such an incredibly large volume of sales and it's all online so it's all kept track of. Netflix has millions of customers and all of them are recommending or saying that they didn't like movies so they've got all of that data. What we need or what they need is some way to take that data and uh, make sense of it, make something valuable out of it. So what's driving the mathematicians becoming part of that uh, top 100 is data analytics, being able to take huge amounts of data, ectobytes of data, and make business decisions out of it. You know what? You have given the best explanation of big data I've ever heard. Oh, because I, I was, I've been hearing about big data, but I really wasn't quite sure that I understood it. But I think the analogies that you use really kind of turn that screw for me so that I get it. Okay, that's what they're trying to yeah, do. They're yeah. trying to take all the information that's out there and really make business decisions with it in certain instances. I'm sure that there's other ways that they're using big data, too. Uh, Yeah, but I mean, it all comes down to that uh, creating this funnel and distillation device that you pour 
billions and billions of numbers in or billions and billions of tweets or Facebook comments or whatever data is at hand and distilling that down to something that makes sense, some piece of knowledge that you can do something with. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. I really, I mean, I really was kind of, what exactly is big data? And I've had numerous people try to explain it. I was just like, am I just not so smart? Um, But anyways, to just ask you, are there any final thoughts, anything else that you'd like to share about becoming a mathematician? You mentioned right at the beginning, one thing that I'm going to disagree a little bit with. You said that mathematicians need to have advanced degrees. I have two bachelor's degrees. So this biases me a little bit against that. In some sense, I've been, sometimes I regret not having gone back and completed a master's degree or doctorate. (laughs) One thing, if I had that, it would uh, allow me to be a, a professor. But one thing that I've noticed, and this is maybe peculiar to my particular environment, that I work with a lot of engineers, one thing that I've noticed is that people with advanced degrees sometimes just don't get it. To maybe uh, emphasize this a little bit too strongly, in order to get a PhD, you need to become the world's expert in one little tiny thing. You need to discover something, to analyze something to the point that nobody else has gone before. In order order to do that, you have to, we all have only 24 hours a day and only a certain amount of brain cells that we're allowed to work with. It will necessarily limit you, no matter how intelligent you are, it limits you to the breadth. You have height, but not breadth. If you can picture a big flat plane with one little tiny uh, spike coming out of it, that's a PhD. In the environments that I've worked in, the people that work out much better are those people where their plane isn't flat, there's bumps in it all over, and there isn't a single spike that extends up to the clouds. For myself, I've had to learn a lot of physics and electrical engineering, all these things that I have mentioned before. I think an ideal person for the type of job I'm in would have four or five or ten bachelor's degrees and not a PhD. This is borne out in, I've worked with uh, perhaps 20 different PhDs through the time that I've been employed, and there were a number of them who were very good, but there was a disproportionate amount of them who didn't work out well. There were quite a number of them, uh, maybe half of them, that actually got uh, dismissed for the job because they weren't able to, they had a hammer in their hand, and they walked around looking for nails. Okay. This is the technique that I know. I am the world's expert in doing this, and everything that comes along, they'll try to use that same hammer on. So if this is directed to the students now, if you decide to get a PhD, and I'm not strongly recommending that, but if you feel that that's necessary for you, then make sure that you learn more than just the one subject that you are the expert in. Learn a number of different topics. Get a bachelor's degree in one topic, a master's in something different, and your doctorate in something else. That's what I think is perhaps the recipe for success for someone who, who feels they need to get an advanced degree. Okay. So if people were looking for ways that they can contact you or get more information about the profession, how would they go ahead and do that, John? Well, I'll mention my blog. I have a blog that I post just about weekly. A lot of it has to do with math, 
color science. Some of it is just totally geeky stuff that, uh, unless you've been in the printing industry, it, it will be absolutely completely boring. The blog spot is John the Math Guy, J O H N T H E M A T H G U Y dot blogspot, B L O G S P O T dot com. That's one place you can go and read the blogs that I've written. Hopefully that you'll find them, at least some of them, entertaining. You can also reach me by email, john at johnthemathguy.com. All right. So those people who are frequent listeners to my podcast will know that I will include links in to his webpage as well as his email address in the show notes. So, John, I thank you very, very, very much for your time today. I think you've really given me a different perspective on mathematicians and have definitely helped me understand a little bit better about what they do and also make the distinction for me between applied mathematics as opposed to what you refer to as uh, pure mathematics, Mm. as well as I think it was interesting that you had the different perspective to share about a PhD program. As you said, it will not be for everybody. And I like the advice that you gave of perhaps considering having different degrees as you progress along than just one in order to get a broader view of the world as well as being able to go through life not looking at all the situations with a hammer in your hand. Right. I got to ask you though, before you go, Sure. Have I changed your mind about mathematicians? Do you feel now that they're uh, geeks and nerds, or uh, have I opened you up to perhaps thinking that some of them are people too? Well, you know, being married 16 years to a man who has a lot of the math bias in him, I've become very familiar and very comfortable with the fact that math guys are not just math guys. They could have much broader interests. If you did not know that my husband had a degree in aerospace engineering, you would never suspect that for a minute because he's like you, very personable, you know, communicates well, you know, he's the type of person that people enjoy and will invite to a party. And that's not been my impression of math guys prior to getting married. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that it's worked out for you. All right. To learn more about the college planning process, I invite you to visit our website at College Funding Resource. I also encourage my listeners to keep coming back to listen to more of our Career 100 podcast. If you like our podcast, we invite you to go into our iTunes channel and rate our podcast. At College Funding Resource, you'll be able to listen to guests like John who have valuable information to share about different careers for you to consider. I also want to invite and thank my listeners for joining us today and hope that you will join me again for the next installment of the Career 100 podcast. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the Career 100 podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next podcast, where we'll continue to interview experts in the top 100 careers for 2011, giving you the insider's view of their chosen profession. If you'd like more information about planning and saving for college and to instantly download your free copy of College Funding Resources Report, Five Strategies That Parents Need to Start Using Today to Cut Their College Costs Tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Kathy Davis for the Career 100 Podcast.